Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I am pleased that I still live in a country that is a multiracial, multicultural democracy. And a big reason we still live in a democracy and not a fascist white nationalist dictatorship, which is what the insurrectionists tried to bring into being on January 6th, throwing out the democratic election. The reason that we live in a democracy is because Donald Trump is lazy and sloppy and arrogant. And that is a cautionary tale in that future white nationalist leaders will likely not be so lazy and sloppy and arrogant. But Trump is, and part of the tragedy of the past seven years is that he never really even wanted to be president in the first place. He'd flirted with the idea of running for decades. His main goal has always been fame and self-aggrandizement, and he ran for president as kind of a lark. And we have a situation really was the white nationalist dog caught the car, and he did get into the White House where he wreaked so much damage and pain and death. And obviously, he came to like being president and all the perks and adulation that came with it. Um, although he did comment early on about how much harder the job was than he thought it was going to be. But fundamentally, Trump has lived a life of entitlement and ease and no consequences. And that's how he acted as president. And then ever since he's been out of the office, many people have wondered if he would ever face consequences for his actions. Like My wife, Susan, turned to me just like as a everyday person asked me like a year ago. He's like, why isn't he in jail? And I think it's a question that many people who love democracy have been asking about the man who tried to overthrow the elected government of the United States. So after a year of watching and wondering whether the legal authorities would hold Trump accountable, things have broken out in the open in the past couple of weeks with multiple high-profile developments that do suggest serious legal trouble for Trump. And I absolutely believe that it's his laziness and sloppiness is what might land him in jail and or bar him from running for office again. I believe his cavalier attitude may have led him to disregard laws and rules and also be sloppy in the cover-up. And so today we're going to try to get an overview of exactly what is going on in terms of Trump's legal troubles, multiple cases in multiple states and places. And for that conversation, we have the perfect guest, a distinguished lawyer, a former federal prosecutor. And for the conversation, I'm joined as always by my co-host and now mother of a middle schooler, which I can't believe, Charlene Chang. Mm -hmm. Hi, Charlene. How are you doing? And do you want to introduce our guest? Hey, Steve, I'm doing great. And yeah, I can't believe it either. It's exciting, but also kind of surreal that my daughter just started middle school. I'm really looking forward to talking to our guest today. One, because I've just been looking forward to meeting him, have been following his social media posts and getting to know his voice for the years after you introduced me to him a few years ago on social media. And also because of this topic, like my 10-year-old, who is close to turning to 11, she has also over time, but especially lately when we've been telling her what's been going on with Trump, just been asking us, like, why is Trump not in jail already? And yeah. and is he going to? Mm -hmm. And hearing it from a kid who just sees it so, so clearly through understanding or trying to wrap her head around like what's right or wrong and also what we tell her in terms of what you can and can't do in this society. We definitely hope that the answer ends up being, yes, the, the legal system works, but it is really something to hear it from a kid and be able to say, we have no guarantee that you know this is this person will actually go to jail. So with that, I'm very much looking forward to introducing our listeners today to our guest, Subodh Chandra. 
Sabot is the founding and managing partner of the Chandra Law Firm, a practice focused on high-profile civil rights litigation. U.S. News & World Report has called the firm one of the best law firms in America for civil rights. Sabot represented Tamir Rice's mother in the police shooting death of our 12-year-old son, Tamir, who was killed by Cleveland police in 2014, because as many of us remember, this was the case where uh, this boy was playing with a replica toy gun, but police claimed that it appeared real and that that's why they shot him. That police shooting was a key moment in the Black Lives Matter movement, nationally resulting in a $6 million settlement. Before founding the firm, Subod served as director of law for the city of Cleveland, a billion-dollar corporation. He's also a former federal prosecutor, as you mentioned, and large firm litigator. Subod is a graduate of the Yale Law School, where he was executive director of the Yale Law and Policy Review, and his work has been featured in not just one, but three documentaries, including the Netflix film 137 Shots, because it's a great film. Welcome, Subod. So glad to have you here today. Thank you very much for having me on such a serious topic. Yes, and Sabod is uh, also a graduate of Stanford, where he and I first connected. We won't say how many years ago, and um, as a, in terms of the the multiple connection points, as I said, why well, should he's the he's the person who got me the gave me the idea and the introduction to be able to speak at the Cleveland City Club back in twenty. 14, which in a lot of ways launched the whole effort around Brown as the new way. And what I said in that speech is that I knew Sabo was a smart guy, but I didn't know how smart he was until I heard he was marrying a woman from Cleveland Heights, Ohio, which is the city that I moved, that I, that I grew up in. And so um, I know you guys have a, a big challenge this week in terms of your, your, your triplets going off to college. And we'll touch on that a little bit later, but th really thanks for making the time to join us today. Thank you. So, be, can you just give us a little bit of back? It's funny, we've known each other so long, but I didn't even really fully grasp and realize what you did as a federal prosecutor and what that role is. Like you see it now on MSNBC, a lot of people, you know, they'll, they'll be the experts or the guests. It's like, oh, so-and-so is the federal prosecutor. What is a federal prosecutor and what is involved in that uh, role and kind of where does it fit within the legal landscape? So the kind of federal prosecutor you're referring to, uh, those who are, commenting on the issues regarding Trump are those who prosecuted federal crimes uh, in their careers at some point. And that was, uh, I had the distinct honor of representing the United States of America, prosecuting individuals for federal crimes. Federal crimes is distinct from state crimes, right? So the garden variety, burglaries, rapes, murders, that's typically not something you'll see federal prosecutors involved in because that involves state law, but these are crimes that are national crimes. And so mail fraud, wire fraud, conspiracy against the United States, those are the kinds of crimes that federal prosecutors handle. And um, I would say even subspecialized within that is the kind of act that we're talking about here in the Trump investigation now, which is not just conspiracy against the United States, which is the January uh, 6th investigation, but actually potential violations of the economic espionage act. Before we get too far along in this conversation, I want to step back a bit and help our listeners about by giving them a quick recap on things. So again, on August 8th, FBI agents searched Donald Trump's home in Palm Beach, Florida, to track down 15 boxes of classified documents that Trump had refused to return to the National Archive for months. 
And news sources say that this signifies a major escalation in the various investigations that Trump is under right now, because there's a number of them. As you mentioned, while the January 6th hearings continue, the Justice Department has also launched its own inquiries connected to the former president. One inquiry is focused on Trump's attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election, as well as his involvement in the January 6th insurrection. The other is related to Trump's handling of classified documents. Trump is also facing a criminal inquiry in Georgia for interfering with election results there. And if all of that was not enough, he's also facing civil action in New York. Uh, and all this is according to the New York Times. And so I just need to pause because it is when I just saying that, it just makes my head go like, I can't even believe how many things are going all at once against, you know, like what this guy has done in my mind. Uh, I know I'm not supposed to say that because we're supposed to let these trials play out. But I, I just keep thinking, A, imagine if this guy was not white. And for sure, imagine if he was a former black president, for example. And I just need to get that off my chest because that's where my mind goes is just this is just so outrageous to me. Right. But they Sibot, did a thing you... on the Daily Show about uh, uh, Obama <laughs> scandal of, uh, wearing a tan suit. That's what got people outraged. But you know what I'm saying? I'm just saying, like, you can't make this. Stop. Well, Charlene, and and, and I, I hate to correct you, but my goodness, you left one investigation out. Oh, which is oh, please the do. Parallel, please the do parallel, shed light. I'm sorry, I missed the, something. <laughs> the, you you mentioned only the New York Attorney General's civil investigation mm. into Donald Trump, but there is a parallel criminal investigation by the Manhattan DA that has gone dormant, um, but it it doesn't appear to be fully dead yet. And so you and and after 400 plus invocations of Fifth Amendment privilege by Donald Trump uh, in connection with the civil investigation, I would be gobsmacked if the Manhattan DA didn't do his job and say, I've got to reopen this investigation and make sure that we're chasing the facts on the criminal side as well. So, yeah, you're right. The, the breadth and scope of the amount of potentially criminal activity Donald Trump is involved in is unprecedented. It's an unprecedented problem which sort of makes it a joke when you hear the critics on the right say, oh, my goodness, look at these terrible things they're doing to a former president. Well, look at the terrible things that this former president seems to have been involved in. Exactly. Um, and certain, certainly seems to be at least worthy of investigation and, and much further than that, in my view, at this point, based on the evidence that has come to light. So it's an unprecedented problem. And I want to echo something that Steve said at the beginning of the show, because I've been saying the same thing, that. Yes, putting aside for the moment the clear racial difference in the way that Donald Trump is handled by everyone, including media versus Barack Obama, putting that aside, here is someone who is so breathtakingly incompetent, Trump is, that, that all of this stuff comes to light because he is like a bull in a china shop with, you know, who's been injected with some kind of uh, drug that makes him hyperactive. He has no self-control, self-awareness. And, and, a, and a, what seems to be a really deep sociopathy. And as a result of that, all of this stuff comes to light because he's not even good at doing criminal activity, right? <laughs> and, and imagine what would happen if this amount of power were given to somebody who mm. was pursuing the same sorts of agendas um, and had the same level of corruption but was smarter about it. I mean, we would have a, even a harder time catching up to that. Okay, so just, uh, I think Charlene had touched <clears throat> touched upon some of these pieces, but can you just kind of succinctly, simply describe again, what are the multiple 
legal challenges that are looking at Trump's activities right now? Well, let's start with the January 6th investigation, which as a threat to democracy really, I think, is probably the biggest issue. And that is the investigation surrounding Donald Trump aiding, abetting, instigating, conspiring with others to uh, essentially commit sedition against the United States, insurrection, participate uh, or spur those January 6th, what, what supposedly started as protests, but then clearly turned into efforts to undermine our democratic process and interfere with official proceedings, namely the certification of Joe Biden as president. So that that is a criminal investigation that it's unclear right now whether he is a target of that investigation. He certainly should be based on the evidence we saw from the January 6th committee. Um, um, but I'd be stunned again if that didn't mature into something based on the evidence that we've seen thus far. Then in Georgia, you have criminal investigations into election interference and efforts to try to overturn the election by uh, trying to uh, do all kinds of things, including have fake slates of electors and uh, try to persuade the secretary of state to essentially not certify the election. But that seems to be the general topic there. In New York, the civil investigation surrounds uh, potential inflation of values for purposes of getting financing. I think broadly speaking, that's what the investigation is about. And then the parallel criminal investigation is supposedly about that as well. We don't have as much publicly available information about what was the criminal investigation. Uh, and then finally, you have this uh, search warrant that was executed on Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago that deals with the handling of classified information, top secret information, sensitive security information, potentially according to the New York Times, including nuclear secrets, and Donald Trump removing that information from the White House and taking it with him for God only knows what purpose. But the Economic Espionage Act under which he is being investigated includes the potential for that information being transmitted to uh, people who aren't supposed to have it. Now, that isn't a necessary element to be prosecuted under some prongs of the statute, but it is one of the prongs of the statute. And so we are looking at, particularly when you look at the billions of dollars or you know, hundreds of millions of dollars being handed over to Jared Kushner by the Saudis, you start to wonder whether these things are connected and whether or not state secrets were being offered to foreign powers, Russia, Saudi Arabia, I don't want to speculate, but what I'm saying is there, there's certainly enough weird Trump activity to make any reasonable person wonder as to why Donald Trump would want to leave the White House with state secrets. Why would you want to do that? And, and that's what's being investigated. Right. And, and I just want to lift that point up. I just accentuate it. I don't think I fully processed or appreciated. So uh, Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, shortly after leaving the White House and being a, a high-level White House official, got a $2 billion investment from the uh, Saudi government and, and, and the, the leaders there. And to say nothing of it, never having even had any kind of uh, business track record that would justify such a thing. So it certainly raises questions. And then you, raise this, you tie it then to what are these different secrets that they have? Uh, there's been so much attention to this whole, to the raid and the outrage and every right-wing media losing its mind and one man losing his life, taking a... a, a assault rifle to the FBI office trying to in Cincinnati to try to 
stand up, you know, defend Trump and actually wound up, you know, being killed. So it's just really, you know, as they talk about being unprecedented, you're saying the actions of this man have been unprecedented. But can you talk a little bit more about what must have happened in terms of the decision making within the Department of Justice to go ahead and to execute that, to go to a former president's house? From your time in the in the as a federal prosecutor, what would have been the behind the scenes calculations and determinations that led to that action? Well, that is a great question, Stephen. That's an important question because as I've been listening to right wing politicians, including uh, elected officials who serve on the Senate Judiciary Committee, run their mouths with all kinds of nonsense accusations against the FBI and the Department of Justice. I've really been been stunned listening to it because it's irresponsible. They know how the process actually works. And here's how the process would work. And, and I think, let me lead with this. There is no question based on what's been publicly reported, but that Donald Trump has been afforded special treatment, special treatment to his favor. It is so clear that he has been given every opportunity to pull himself out of jeopardy, and yet for some bizarre reason, he's refused to do so. And why do I say that? That's because the process that was followed here was an effort to get back top secret classified national security information voluntarily. It's clear that DOJ made efforts to try to get back the information voluntarily that they identified as missing. And they did that over and over again. And Trump actually had a lawyer who certified that everything had been turned over and that turned out to be false. Whether it was a knowing lie on the part of the lawyer or whether Trump was using the lawyer for criminal purposes, a whole other question. But there's a level of special treatment being given here. And so what you should understand and what your listeners should understand, Steve, is the U.S. Department of Justice, first of all, doesn't take the issuing of search warrants lightly, certainly not with such a high-profile target, because they recognize that it's going to cause political controversy. And so for a warrant like this to be issued, what we would have to see within the Department of Justice at every increasing level of supervision, the hard question would be asked, what have you done to try to solve the problem short of executing a search warrant? Mm-hmm. Let me repeat that. What have you done short of executing a search warrant to try to secure these documents? And is this necessary? Is there proof that he took them? Is there proof on where they are located? All of that would be needed to to issue a search warrant and to ask a U.S. magistrate judge for a search warrant. And so what had to have happened here, I mean, I'm 100% certain of this, and, and essentially we've gotten confirmation from the attorney general, is that from the line FBI agents who did the investigation, who put together an affidavit and report, this would go up to their supervisor. This would go up to the supervisor's supervisor. This would go to the special agent in charge of the field office responsible for the investigation. This would go to supervisors in Washington, D.C. at the FBI, probably go to the FBI director, though possibly not. We don't have public confirmation of that. And then in parallel at the Department of Justice, it would go from the line prosecutors responsible for vetting the search warrant application to their supervisors, to their supervisors, potentially to a U.S. attorney, all the way on up to the, it turns out, the attorney general of the United States. And that's completely appropriate for such a high profile target, a former president, it's completely appropriate that everybody at every level make sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed. But what that means 
is that Donald Trump was given more due process than the rest of us would get under similar circumstances. You know, if this was a former deputy national security advisor, or if this was somebody else at a high level of government, uh, somebody in the Department of Commerce, a senior executive service person who had taken these documents, you can bet that this would not have been scrutinized the way that this particular search warrant was scrutinized. So Donald Trump was given not just due process, but more than due process. And yet, nevertheless, he somehow couldn't bring himself to return these vital documents to the United States government. And it really leads to the question of why. Why did he want them? Why did he need them? Why was he holding on to them? Why did he arrange for a misrepresentation to the government that he had returned everything? And it also suggests that the FBI has sources within the Trump orbit Mm-hmm. who are concerned about this and who blew the whistle on this. Because otherwise, the government wouldn't have had information, number one, that the documents were still there, that was so good that a U.S. magistrate judge signed off on it, and also information about where the documents were that was so good that the agents could persuade a magistrate judge this is going to be a limited and targeted search. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think somebody tweeted um, that Trump's the youngest son is 16 years old. Um, Barron is like, yeah, Barron was sitting there playing on his Xbox and the FBI came in. He just pointed to the safe and told them where to go. Right, so. <laughs> I wanted to jump to uh, the January 6th hearings again. There have now been nine televised hearings. The hearings have drawn over 13.1 million viewers across multiple networks, apparently slightly more than the average viewership of the 2021 Major League Baseball World Series. So I've been told. So it's a, it's a lot. And some of the information that's come out has just really been mind blowing. I'm sh- I'm sure you've felt the same. Absolutely. And, yeah. And then Absolutely. apparently 64% of Democrats say they've learned something new. I don't have the figure around what Republicans, <laughs> what percentage of Republicans felt like they learned something new. But regardless, I just I just want to overall hear what are your thoughts on the January 6th hearings? And do you think there is now enough evidence to indict Trump? And also, what do you think? will happen next? And what do you think should happen next? So the final days of the hearing in which the committee cogently presented eyewitness testimony to Donald Trump's own behavior, what he knew about what was happening and whether he acted or wouldn't act in reaction to what was happening, I think is very damning for the ex-president. I don't see how he could walk away from this without being charged with conspiracy, without being charged with aiding and abetting, uh, or one of the various federal offenses uh, about conspiracy against the United States of America. He, he, he knew what he was doing. Uh, he was making various hostile comments to, about Mike Pence, for example, simultaneously. It's sort of astonishing that Mike Pence continues to suck up to him. But Mm -hmm. uh, nevertheless, I just don't see how Donald Trump escapes from this without being criminally charged. Because at the end of the day, he is the one responsible for what happened. If he had not instigated people, uh, if he he was fully aware, he even made the comment, you remember this came out at the hearing, he even made the comment uh, to the agents that those people aren't there to harm me or words to that effect, right? Mm -hmm. They're not going to harm me. And so he knew, he understood what they were there to do, that they were there to harm somebody else. They're no threat to him. And 
I think that this is something, it is so serious what has transpired here. I feel like we've become numb to it over time, you know, and we're almost starting to accept it as this kind of, well, this is just the way things are. This is just politics. No, this is not politics. Steve, you and I grew up in politics. This was never politics. This was never politics. Nothing close to this in America. And my parents, my immigrant parents, my father keeps saying to me from time to time, like, never in his life would he have thought that America could have come to this. He came in the mid-1960s, and he's seen all kinds of social upheaval. And he's saying he never thought America would come to this. And yet here we are. So somebody has to be held responsible. And I think that person who is ultimately going to be held responsible is Donald Trump. And I'd be very shocked and disappointed if the attorney general didn't pursue. Oh, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. That gives me hope. Restore my faith. (laughs) What's been your your take? Somebody who's worked in the Justice Department and kind of watching all this unfold. Because I know that I frankly was wondering and then frustrated that I didn't see more action and aggressive action by the attorney general. Um, but it certainly seems like now that the, that perhaps they have been moving all along. So somebody who's been in that operation, so, what's your sense of it all? So, so I'm going to say something to you that I hope will reassure you. Because look, Steve, I'm right there with you. I share your frustration. And you know, sometimes when you get a glimpse into the personality of Merrick Garland, whether it was in his uh, Supreme Court hearings or whether uh, or you know his statements related to his Supreme Court appointments, or whether it was in connection with his role as attorney general, you get the sense of a very bland, middle of the road kind of guy. And you get the sense like, does he not feel with the same level of passion we do, the outrage and the injustice and the betrayal of our democracy that's unfolding here? Um, And I think we caught a little glimpse of that fire in him that some of us may have thought, or at least questioned whether it was Mm -hmm. lacking. I think we caught some of that fire in his press conference where he was very restrained. But when he spoke in an impassioned way in defense of the institution of the FBI, the institution of the Department of Justice and the line employees, that's where you got a sense of that fire. So let me offer you this reassurance, uh, Steve and Charlene. Here's here's the reassurance I'm going to offer you. The nature of the professionalism of the FBI and the nature of the professionalism of the U.S. Department of Justice, its defining characteristic in terms of professionalism is the culture of secrecy. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it different. That's what makes it special is the ability of these public servants under a lot of pressure and public scrutiny to keep secrets and to keep their head down and to do their work and to do it quietly and without fanfare, and then finally to put their cards on the table in the appropriate way, due process, in court, at the right time. That's the defining nature of that institution. It's, it's what makes it so great. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to digress a little bit to tell you a story to illustrate the point. Um, when I was a federal prosecutor, I, I very much enjoyed being a part of that culture of the Department of Justice and the FBI. And I remember one time some FBI agents and I had to go on site as part of an investigation that we were doing and uh, review some documents and ask some questions. And so we go to this location of a big corporation and we're, we're reviewing documents and the people at the corporation put some cookies on the table for us. Okay. And we were there for like eight or nine hours reviewing documents and the agents didn't touch a cookie and I didn't touch a cookie. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, I said to them, hey, why didn't you guys take a cookie? They said, well, we weren't going to take a cookie. Why didn't you take a cookie? I said, well, I wasn't going to take a cookie. I mean, that's... <laughs> the that, cookie that, test. That, 
Yeah, that sense of that sort of being buttoned down of, of understanding what's proper and what's improper. Mm-hmm. And, and a similar story to this is when I left the Department of Justice and I became the city of Cleveland of Ohio's law director, you know, there were investigations that we were doing of the division of police into police misconduct and, and corruption in the police department. And I remember senior officials in the administration urging me, well, no, no, we need to give this to, you know, some other internal affairs in the police department, or we need to give this to some other entity. And I said, if we do that, it's going to be on the news media within 48 hours. Mm -hmm. Okay. This place leaks like a sieve. That culture Mm -hmm. of professionalism isn't there. Whereas I, and I insisted, we need to give this to the feds. And, and there were people opposing me. Oh, we can't trust them. I said, listen, I, I trust them with my secrets long before I trust any of you. Mm -hmm. I said, quite frankly, because I know that when I send an investigation like this to the FBI, if there's nothing there, the investigation will peter out and it will die a quiet death and no one will ever hear about it. Um, but there won't be any news media that, that taints the investigation and alerts the targets and subjects of investigation as to what's happening. That's, I think, what we're starting to see now. There is a lot going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. I think they know a lot more than we do than has come out in the media and I think they're doing their job and they're doing it properly. Do I wish they were doing it faster, guys? Oh, yeah. I wish they were doing it faster because the tr- threat to our democracy is imminent. It's mm-hmm. constant. And it feels like we are on the verge of a bunch of lunatics taking up arms and engaging mm-hmm. in domestic terrorism. So mm-hmm. they need to act quickly. But, but I have every confidence that that culture of secrecy is the appropriate professional culture you want to have in a sensitive investigation. Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy. The topsy turvy that we're like, what, less than two years after all the black lives matter protests or slightly more. And, and you literally now have the right wing saying defund the police. I mean, it's, it's yeah. just incredible. But what does it, what does that show you, Steve? What, what it, what it lays bare for me is that all of the law and order nonsense we've been hearing from these people over the years has been just that. It's just been a a political wedge issue. They never really meant it. They were trying to create an us against them. And then all of a sudden, when law and order is closing in on them, Mm -hmm. truly the rule of law is closing in on them. Adherence to norms, adherence to law, and there's accountability finally happening at their doorstep. Suddenly it's defund the FBI. And and the, the irony of the whole thing is that, look, I work with a lot of FBI agents. And I'd say the majority of them were politically conservative. We rarely talked about politics, but occasionally when it would come up, I mean, it was pretty clear to me that most of the FBI agents I worked with were Republicans hmm. and uh, with, with rare exception. And, and so I just imagine what it's like to be them. If you've been a rock rib, lifelong Republican, may even be from a Republican family, you're apolitical in the way you do your job. And all of a sudden, you know, your political party is turning on you and, and literally stoking up hatred and death threats and, and even an attack, the attack on in Cincinnati. I mean, that's no accident. That yeah. guy was a January 6th participant. Yeah. And imagine what it's like to be in their shoes. It's, it's got to be a terrible thing. The names of the agents involved in the search, mm-hmm. their family members' names being leaked out into the world uh, to try to essentially, I mean, look, these people, I, I'm going to just say it. They're no better than the Ayatollah, okay? What they're essentially doing is they're calling for their own fatwa against mm-hmm. the FBI. And, and 
We have politicians who are participating in that. We have United States senators who are effectively encouraging that. It, these are these are scary times when that yeah. happens. And I really hope that the Democrats step up and show themselves to be uh, committed to the rule of law and to those who are enforcing it. And to really understand and act like they know, you know, that they understand what's happening and what's at stake. Speaking of like time is of the essence and you're saying the clock is ticking. I have a question that I know a lot of people have on their mind, which is, do you feel like he, uh, Trump, uh, like, will he or can he be barred from running again in 2024? Because that's what's looming over you know, a lot of people's minds is here he's being investigated in all these cases connected to all these trials, but yet he's talking about running in 2024. And, and in a lot of ways, there are Republicans now, like his supporters who are getting riled up. This is, you know, the irony of it. What do you think is a likelihood that that might actually happen? So the answer to this is unfortunately very complicated and probably too complicated for the time we have left. But let me try to put it in the simplest terms that I can. First of all, I think that there are aspects of the statutory scheme involving economic espionage and handling of classified information that uh, if there is a conviction or a plea agreement could bar somebody from holding a federal position. I think the trickier question is how that jibes with the constitutional requirements for eligibility for the presidency. And what we saw before in the impeachment processes was that there is a provision in the Constitution that allows uh, Congress to bar someone from running for president again as part of the impeachment remedy. Uh, but it's less clear what the result would be uh, from a federal statute, whether that would be found to be in conflict. So it's a complicated issue legally. What I think the part that is makes no sense to me right now, and maybe you can shed some light on it for your listeners, but the part that makes no sense to me is how Trump can be in this much trouble and there can be this much evidence out in the world and yet you see his base, not just his base, but now Republican mainstream politicians rallying around him as if he's some sort of folk hero. That to me makes no sense. And one would hope that during the course of a primary season, the fever would break. But I don't think we can have confidence in that given what we see happening to you know Liz Cheney and others. And so what that means is we can only hope that his share of the overall electorate, you know, when you bring into to count the independents and the Democrats, that the share of people who are crazy enough to support someone as awful as this stays no more than 35% of the electorate, you would think it would be well under 25. So, so there's no simple answer to your question. But what I can say is that Technically, under the statutory scheme, if he's convicted of the right crime, he should be barred from office. It's just unclear whether that would eventually survive court scrutiny. All right. So I think the brings us back to politics and that now um, we have to win. Well, right. We have to win. And I think that as you're saying is that, you know, I've done a lot of you know work around breaking this down, quantifying, et cetera. And so I do still fully believe that 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 the majority of people in the country want there to be a multiracial, multicultural democracy. I think the minority is bigger than we have thought. 
but it's still a minority. But I think it's in the 40s, actually, in terms of what we've seen with this man in terms of where um, the support continues, right? So that Ron Brownstein's written a lot about this. I think he has a piece in CNN uh, this week about it, really said that he's been tweeting about it in terms of how all evidence about anything that's not supporting that worldview gets discarded and they only see this in terms of what's happening to them and the kind of this whole stop to steal is not just about steal of the election it's steal of the country mm. and steal of the country from the conception that this should be primarily a white nation and that's yes. undergirding it that's so as true. long as trump is championing that he can literally do no wrong in those people's minds so no and and what's been interesting about how the rhetoric has been sharpening in this white nationalist white supremacist direction steve i mean there were people four or five years ago who were calling you and me hysterical for calling out the rhetoric. And uh, now it's so obvious that they don't even hide behind dog whistles anymore. Right. Yeah. And so uh, if you've seen this video that the daily show put together of David Duke and other Klansmen and white supremacists and their quotes, and then the quotes from Tucker Carlson and Republican politicians, they're the exact same quotes. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think that, that, that's how high the stakes have gotten. And it's why you see voter suppression. It's why you see efforts to shave off percentages of the, of the Democratic electorate, because they realize that without gerrymandering, right. without uh, voter suppression, they can't win. They don't exactly. command the majority. Yeah. And, and so I think well, we're, we are at this very strange stage where I, I hear some Democrats say, gosh, maybe they shouldn't do anything to Trump because it's going to get the base all excited and then the civil war is going to happen and more crazy things are going to happen. And yet I'm left saying, how can you pretend to be a country founded on democracy and the rule of law if you don't hold someone accountable, if you don't really live up to the principle that no one is above the law, including Donald Trump, right? right? And the nature of the criminal activity here is so extreme, is so severe that unless we see accountability here, I think we're just not going to recognize America. I mean, I barely recognize America as it is. And, and I think that if we don't see accountability, then, I mean, we're just no better than any banana republic out there, right? Mm -hmm. so, so that's where we are. That's what the stakes are now. And I have to say, after watching the Attorney General's press conference, I started to feel a rekindled sense of faith here that there are quiet public servants who have their heads down and are doing their jobs and are focused on the evidence and not focused on politics and are going to do what is right. And if I lose that faith, uh, I don't know what to say. I don't have faith in the U.S. Supreme Court anymore as to what the end result will be. But at least I have faith that at the line level, there are people who are really trying to do their jobs and keep their heads down, even in the, th in the face of threats to their physical safety. And that ought to give us all confidence, confidence that in the end, this will turn out okay. It may take a while for the fever to break, but it's got to break. It just has to break. Otherwise, we're going to be a broken country. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going we're gonna to let, uh, let you go in general. And I know in particular, you've got uh, uh, transitions happening in your life. Is there a, in your little social media circle, famous photo from when Bush was elected, where you had your three triplets next to the headline about uh, Bush being elected and they're crying because like, they were little <laughs> kids, right? Yeah. Yeah. And now they're all off to college. So wow. um, yeah, they went from infants crying over Bush being supposedly reelected to 
elementary school kids celebrating the election of Barack Obama with their headlines and then uh, back to crying again with Trump as teenagers and now off to college. So, um, yeah, those are the big milestones. And uh, off we go over the next month or two. Thank you. Great. Well, good luck. And thanks for joining us. Well, we appreciate thanks it. Thanks so much Thank for you. joining us. All right. That's uh, all the time we have for today, both uh, sobering and um, some level, I think, reassuring conversation. But I think in terms of the stakes of the situation being quite profound, um, that being accentuated. And it does um, call to mind the post-Civil uh, War period, right? In Ron Bennett Jr.'s book, he talks a lot about how there was a moment where you could have had accountability for the people who were actual traitors and tried to overthrow the country and murdered hundreds of thousands of people in that regard. Bennett says that there was ever a moment for imposing a lasting solution to the racial problem, that was it. But the North dawdled and the moment passed. And Confederates realized the North was divided and unsure and hope returned. And I do think that's the moment that we're facing here. But it, I am encouraged by, this, by the January 6th hearings, and then I am encouraged by Merrick Garland's actions and the Justice Department's actions, and the, as Sabote mentioned, his press conference, where there was a level of resolve that was encouraging, just in terms of small-D democracy. So we hope that was illuminating and helpful. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. You can follow Sabote on Twitter, where he's a frequent social media commentator. It's at Sabod Chandra, S-U-B-O-D-H, Chandra. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcast, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at at Democracy in Color. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is Democracy in Color production, produced by Olivia Parker, with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco, keep the faith that we will remain a multiracial democracy.